You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbard, pastor of New Hope Chapel. I wanted to thank you for listening to this message from our teaching team, and I pray that God uses it to touch your heart. Good morning, beloved. I was like those people are like, are they talking to me? Is this me? <laughs> You're the beloved of God. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of six uh, teachers here at New Hope Chapel. I'm not a leader. I'm just one of six people who missed a meeting and so <laughs> made me one of the teachers. So last week we talked about Nehemiah, the ninth chapter, Building with Confession. Today we're going to talk about building with commitment or creating and sustaining energy with accountability and passion. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come here now to be in your presence. We come here to be taught by you. Father, I pray for myself that I would be able to now stand aside and allow you to speak through me and for me. We treasure this time to be here with you. We pray that we would be forever changed by being here today. In Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen and amen. So as we move into Nehemiah 10, the test question is, did we really finish Nehemiah 9? And the answer is no, we didn't look at the very last verse. The last verse of Nehemiah... 9 is the 38th verse, and it's really attached to the 10th chapter. And it says, because of all this, all the confession, all that they've done wrong, they're going to make a firm agreement in writing, and on that sealed document are inscribed the names of our officials, our Levites, and our priests. And then the 10th chapter goes on to list all these names of all these people that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. I'm not even going to read them. I'm going to skip forward in the chapter a little bit uh, down to about the 29th verse, where it says, And the rest of the people join with their kin, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath. So the, the question is, what was in this document that they put in writing and that they signed? Well, the first part of it is basically that they're going to uh, obey all the law. They're going to reinstitute all of the festivals and all the ordinances. And then it goes on in the 34th verse. I'm going to pick up here. We've also cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God by ancestral houses at appointed times, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our soil and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord. Also, to bring to the house of our God, to the priest who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our livestock, as it is written in the law and the firstlings of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our soil. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our rural towns. And the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tithe of the tithes, to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the storerooms where the vessels of the sanctuary are and where the priests that minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are. We will not neglect the house of our God. So in summary, they're going to separate themselves which we didn't read about that. They're not going to buy merchandise on the Sabbath from foreigners. They're going to let the land rest. 
and forgive debt every seventh year, as it says in the law. They're going to pay the temple tax. They're going to take turns supplying the wood for burnt offerings, bring the first fruits. They're going to bring their firstborn sons and the first of everything else and allow the Levites and the priests along with them to collect all of their contributions and bring them to the house of God to take care of the house of God. In other words, they're going to basically agree to do everything that's already written in Leviticus. It's already been written down. I'm sure this really impressed God. Thanks for writing that down. Already wrote it down, but thanks for writing that down for me and signing it. Appreciate it. (laughs) You've all heard the saying, a man's name is only as good as his word. And the reverse of that is a man's word is actually only as good as his name. One gentleman talked about it like this. He said, my grandfather taught me at an early age that a man's word is his bond. If you go back on your word, you will never be trusted and no one will do business with you. That all comes from Proverbs 22, which says a good name is, to be, is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. And that got me thinking about God's name. We could say God's name is only as good as his word, right? And God has never gone back on his word. His word will never pass away. His word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's why we say God's name is above all names. And that name we know him as is the name of Jesus, at whose name every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. You ever heard this before? Read everything before you sign. I was, told, said that when, I was told that when I was a young man, as probably many of you were, my your mom, dad, grandfathers, uncles, teachers, lawyers, everyone. There's really been sort of an evolution in my mind of how we got to signing things because there once was a day when someone would say, you can take my word for it, and if you had that person's word, you knew you could trust him. And then people came along like Bertie Madoff and said, you have my word, and he made off with everybody's money. And so now we want to do more than just have a word, then it evolves to what we have now as the handshake, which some people still make a deal on handshakes. It's one of our favorite shows, American Pickers. They do all their deals with a handshake. But sometimes the handshake wasn't enough, and so now you need to sign here, 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 and here, and initial here, and here. <laughs> Remember the first time you closed on your house, <laughs> and all these forms you're signing everywhere, and it's, you know they're this long, and the print's like this big, and that person there from the title agency says, this just says this, you go, okay, you know, sign it away. <laughs> I want to get this house so bad, I'll sign anything, okay? Well, it says, because of this, we make a firm agreement in writing on a sealed document, and they inscribe their names. So writing things down creates something we refer to as accountability power. I talk about this all the time when I'm teaching courses in negotiation. It's in writing, and people feel accountable to it. And that's why we obey signs. Well, most of us obey signs, right? You see a sign, you obey it because it's in writing. They wouldn't have put it in writing if it wasn't really true. And then signing that document creates another level of accountability for people. And it can serve several purposes. One is to indicate the authenticity of a document. This is called its provenance. Another reason might be to transfer authority from one person to another, like in a power of attorney. Remember, Nehemiah did this with the king, right? He asked the king to sign some documents so he could move freely throughout the land and other areas and also to be able to take wood from the king's forest. And the third, of course, it creates accountability for the person signing that document. See, it's all about trying to form some degree of trust. Other people use another technique. The Nation of Islam, they use this word. Let's all read this together. Ready? (laughs) You don't know you're Aramaic? (laughs) 
Neither do I. I looked that up. <laughs> that says, Inshallah. Inshallah. That means God willing. And Muslims use this to indicate that you can count on me to do that, God willing. But they really use it more often to get out of the problem that they got themselves into. Why didn't you do that? Well, I was going to do it, but apparently it wasn't God's will to do that. It's a way to get out of something. One of my uh, students was sharing with me a while back. Uh, he's in the Army. He was a contracting officer. And after Desert Storm, he was over there helping to clean up and so on. And they had contracts uh, let with a lot of the locals to do various things that they could do, one of which is uh, drive trucks. This one guy, Ahmed, from the village, he showed up late to work every single day, hour, two, three, four, and each time he would you know, counsel him and give him a hard time and put more pressure on him and threaten him. It got so bad that the other elders from the village came to the contracting officer and you know, said, you, know, you need to back off on Ahmed. Why are you giving him such a hard time? He has 12 children, all these problems, and so on. And he said, look, uh, that's none of my business. He signed the contract, and he needs to be here on time. And so the village elders said, We will take care of this personally. We will make sure he's here on time. From now on, Ahmed will be here on time. Inshallah. And he said, then I had this clever idea. And so I said, thank you so much for your participation and helping in this effort. And please tell Ahmed that I will pay him. Inshallah. (laughs) And guess what happened? Apparently it became God's will that Ahmed was there every single day on time. So two can play at this game, if God willing, will be there. So trust broken is actually called betrayal. And once that has happened, it can become difficult to rebuild that trust. Another one of my clients just this past week was sharing with me one of his problem employees. They sit down and he gives her what her work is to do. And of course, she ends up not doing it. And then she says, I don't remember you saying that. I must have blanked out and so on. And so he asked me what he should do. And I said, put these things in writing so she can see that it's been written down. That way it's harder for her to say, I don't remember you saying that. And even better, the next level was see if you can get her to sign that. Okay, Put it in writing, it creates accountability. Accountability power. So the names of the people are listed. You can see why I'm not going to try to pronounce all these names. But they're listed both in terms of the actual name but also by category. So the priests, the officials, and the Levites all signed this document to prove that this is what they're going to do. It's in writing, and they've signed it. Two levels of accountability power. And the question is, so did putting everything in writing and signing it actually work? Well, you would think it would. However, what happens is, Nehemiah governs Jerusalem for about 12 years, and then he returns to his previous job because of the Family Lee Work Act, returns to his job as cupbearer, And then uh, he has to return a few years later to Jerusalem. It says some time later, and that usually is a reference to at least a year, maybe a two or three. He has to return to Jerusalem because everything kind of went right back to where it was. The wall was still up, but their guard was down. What had happened was the chief priest, in the process of, remember, the Levites are going out and collect the the tithe from the royal community, so they go outside the wall to do that. Well, apparently there was a warlord in the area named Tobiah who must have been threatening them. And so the chief priest, in his cleverness, instead of depending on God for that protection, he does something even more clever than that. He clears out one of the storerooms. We just read about bringing all that stuff into the storerooms of God. He cleans one of the nicest ones out and makes an apartment for Tobiah, who is a pagan. 
And so here's what's happened while Nehemiah's gone. A pagan is now living in the very storerooms that they just said that they were going to bring the, the, the treasure of the, to the house of God. So Nehemiah comes back, and he takes all that furniture of Tobiah. He's not afraid of them, and he, he throws it out of the, of, the, of the storeroom of the temple. He cleans God's house. Does that sound familiar to you? <laughs> yeah, so in that way, Nehemiah, Nehemiah is essentially a type of Christ. So, so much for putting everything in writing. <clears throat> and yet God still trusts us. Even when we break our promises, God still trusts us. Something may be kind of strange to think about that God is trusting us. What is he trusting us with? Well, he's entrusted this planet to us. He's entrusted his word, the building of his kingdom to us. He's entrusted to us our own skills and abilities. He's entrusting us to use that for building his kingdom. And all he asks in return is that we trust him. I love Brandon Manning's, Brandon Manning's statement, our trusting God is so important to him that he died for the love of it. That's all he wants us to do. I think of it this way, at this point, um, and this is kind of a crude way of telling this, but it's just for exemplary purposes, that in, I think of it sort of this way, and maybe it'll help you, it kind of helps me. As I think about this conversation at this point between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and when, when they've done this again, the Father says, well, they betrayed me again, they haven't kept their word. They even put it in writing this time. They signed it. And the Son says, well, Father... I don't think they're going to be able to keep their word on their own. Their sin weighs them down. They are easily distracted and tempted, and they're weak. Their burnt offerings don't sustain them. Their good works don't keep them in good relationship. And the father asks, so what are you suggesting, son? And the son says, well, if I were to go down there and offer myself as a sacrifice, would you give them, forgive them once and for all? And so the father asks, why would you do that? And the son replies, because I want them to know you as I know you. I want to tell them about you so that they know who you truly are. I want them to know how much you really love them. And the father looks at the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says, well, if Jesus does this, then I will point everyone who seeks you towards Jesus. And for those who actually believe on his name and accept him into their life, I will happily indwell them and give them the power and the love and the sound mind they need so that they can keep their word like you keep yours. And Jesus says, and I, Father, will always point to you. And then the Father says, then let there be light. And a new light came into the world and is shining. And so the Son comes, and he gives his word to give them life. And in return, they give him death, and they put him in a tomb. And they put a seal on the tomb. It wasn't their own seal this time. It was the seal of the king. They used the king's seal to seal in the king of kings. And the father laughed. See, the reason they sealed it is they didn't want anything to move. They were worried about somebody coming and taking the body. So they sealed this so that nothing would move. Under oppression, they would rather stay under oppression by men and keep things the way they are. They didn't want anything to move. And that way with that seal... In place, the stone couldn't be moved, and therefore the body couldn't be moved, and nothing was to move. And then God moved. And he himself rolls away the stone, and he frees us up, and he says, Arise, my love. 
arise. The grave no longer has a hold on you. No more death thing. No more suffering. So that we now can live in a trusting, loving relationship with him. Our sentence of death was commuted so that we could become committed. You see, Nehemiah is teaching us indirectly why we come to church. I like to start out with why I don't come to church. I don't come here to worship. I can, I can worship anywhere, and I do. But I, when I come here to worship with all the rest of you saints, the worship becomes sweeter, becomes richer, and I enjoy it. But I don't come here to worship. I don't come here to be fed. This is a great place to be fed. We have great teachers here. And the reason I don't do it like that is because I'm told in 1 John 2.27, As for you, the anointing you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, abide in him. You see, we are taught directly by the Holy Spirit. If you just open the word of God and ask him to teach you, he will do it. So I don't come here to be taught or fed. But when I come here, I am taught. (laughs) And I am fed. I come to church because it's the easiest and simplest place where I can find opportunities to serve and minister both to the saints and to the lost. That's why I come here, because I'm lazy. (laughs) It's an easy place to come and serve God. You see, we come not to consume, but to provide. We come not to take, but to give. We come not to be fed, but to feed. Notice in that passage I showed you in Nehemiah, I kept highlighting the words to bring, to bring to the house of God. Because when you do that, this is what happens. For it is in the providing that we will become consumed. It is in the giving that we receive and it is in the feeding that we are fed. And so here at New Hope Chapel, which I call our little brick church on the peninsula, like the little brown church on the veil, What we're doing here is basically what Nehemiah was teaching us is we're learning how to build with prayer combined with action through opposition with generosity along with others based on God's word which Julie will talk about next week and confessing that we can do nothing apart from Christ and mobilizing that effort with commitment. So the question becomes are we supposed to put our commitments in writing? Well, Jesus himself answers that question and he says no. In Matthew 5, he says, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not even swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Don't even swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Although, as I think about that, some of us have learned how to turn some white hairs black, but... (laughs) We need outside help. All you need, all you need to do is simply say yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So here at New Hope Chapel, if we were to take Nehemiah literally, then I guess we would build a wall around the church. (laughs) But we don't need to do that because we are the wall. Remember, the wall is the witness that we are here and Jesus is in us. Are we supposed to sign documents? Well, I guess if we were to do that, we'd have our elders sign some documents. The problem here with this church is the elders really aren't in charge either because we're a communal form of government. We are all a part of this church. We're trying to return to the model that God desired after Exodus, which is that he would be the king of Israel. It was Israel who demanded a human king. So 
as Steve is often saying, this is God's church. None of us are special. I'm just up here because, like I said, I missed a meeting. I'm not the leader of this church. I'm not the leader of all the teachers. I'm just one of you guys who got up here because I was asked to, and I'm sharing with you some of the things I'm learning from the Word of God. You see, no one here is special because everybody here is special. Everybody has a part to play. No one has more authority than anyone else. We're all held accountable to God. See, I I generally avoid starting out with a statement like this. This is the problem with the church today. You've heard people say that. I kind of avoid saying that as much as I can. And the reason for that is this. It occurred to me years ago that the church is the bride of Jesus. And if you start criticizing my bride, it's going to be a short period of time, and you and I are going to be outside, and I don't care how big you are. You talk about my girl, we're going outside. (laughs) That's why I generally avoid saying the problem with the church today is... But I would like to make maybe an observation about what happens in many churches is what's happened in Jerusalem over the centuries. And that is too many churches start to rely on one pastor or a small group of people to do everything. And that doesn't work here because there is no one person or one small group of people who are doing everything. And those churches that do that, sometimes those pastors become like celebrities. And then what happens when the celebrity falls? which they do, (laughs) then the whole church falls. The Mark Driscoll story is just exactly that example. It's almost like as soon as a pastor becomes a celebrity, it's just a matter of time that God is going to go crash (laughs) because he's a celebrity. So here at our little brick church on the peninsula, we're still learning. We just talked about this at men's Bible study this past Tuesday night. We're still trying to figure out how to interact with each other and how to make new people feel welcome and how to make them feel useful. You see, the end work of Nehemiah, in addition to reinstating the observance of God's law, is he restored the community. People began working together, and sharing the burden no longer became a burden. Sharing the burden became the privilege. They all committed themselves to some common good, and that's what we're trying to do here at our little church. How can we help people feel welcomed, wanted, and needed, and insignificant? See, we don't put a lot of pressure on people here to participate. We have what I call um, a low-pressure community. (laughs) Partly because so many of us were drawn here because we were led here to sort of heal from injuries we received at other churches. As a result, we have unintentionally, or the Lord has intentionally, kind of gathered a great deal of talent and experience here in this little church. Some have expressed frustration about that, that we're not doing more while others have expressed amazement and hope that the Lord has brought us together for some awesome reason. So I guess the question is, what exactly are we being called to do or we're supposed supposed to be doing? Are we being called to grow a large church? Are we being called to focus on quality and depth of study? Are we called to focus on missions and reaching people thousands of miles away? Or are we being called to somehow minister to the local community or a little bit of both? Are we being called to really get good at worship? I don't know the answer to that. But I know that the book of Nehemiah starts out with revealing Nehemiah's heart. And it says, When I heard these things that his brother reported to him how the gates of Jerusalem had been burned and the walls knocked down, he sat down and he wept. And we see the heart of this man, what he cared about. And for days he mourned and fasted and prayed before God. And from the depths of his passion... From the depths of his being, a passion burst forth. So I do know this. 
I do know that whatever we are individually passionate about, we will easily commit our time to investing money and energy to be involved with it. When we look back at how Nehemiah organized the people, he did something quite interesting and very simple. He had people working on the part of the wall that was nearest to their house or their business. Think about that. If you're building the wall right behind your house or right next to your business, how diligent would you be to make sure that that wall stands pretty firm? You would be invested in that, what you care about. I think that's something that's interesting about this church is that there really is no old guard in place running things around here. In fact, to some extent, if you even whisper that you're interested in being involved in some type of ministry, you'll likely be contacted within five minutes, and within the hour, you'll be in charge of it. (laughs) Of course, digest. Or do I? (laughs) In fact, not only is there no old guard here, there isn't even a new guard in place. We don't even have a full-time staff who work here 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. So when someone says we should be ministering to this or we should be doing this, we should be doing that, when you say that, guess what? This is it. We are who we are. We don't have some group of people go, oh, we got a new task, let's go work on it. If you say we should do that, somebody's going to say, when are you going to start on that? That's probably what's going to happen. You see, here's one of the things I've learned about getting involved in ministry. If you're willing to get involved in ministry for the purpose of allowing Jesus to live through you and for you, then you are in the right direction. You are hitting the target. You're on the mark. However, if you want to get involved in ministry because you want to meet your social needs or you want to be the leader of something or you want to show off your skills and abilities, then I would highly discourage you from getting involved in the ministry with the Lord because you would be missing the bullseye. And in archery, you know what they call missing the bullseye? It's called a sin. That's where we get the word. It's an archery term, not missing the mark. And so it's from the heart where everything springs forth. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance. It's an interesting word with vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Pay attention to your heart. Watch, wonder, and wait. And then as one of my friends says, Put wheels on those prayers. Put, find out what you talk, you're interested in and then start moving in that direction and see if that little spark turns into a bit of a fiery passion. Years ago, we attended a church in Montgomery, Alabama. And the church there was a rather large church. And whereas most churches have at most 30% of the congregation involved in ministry, this church had about 85% of the congregation involved in ministry. Uh, many churches do something which they call canvassing, which is they contact all the members to see how much they'll pledge to give to the church financially. This church didn't do that. This church canvassed the entire congregation to see what ministries they would be involved in the next year. And so that's why a lot of people were involved in ministry, because that's what that church did. One young man, when he looked at the list, they provided a list of all the things you'd be involved in, and you could check those things off and sign your name. One young man couldn't find any ministry that was meeting when it would fit his work schedule. So he approached the pastor and shared with him, I really want to be involved in ministry, but my work schedule doesn't allow me to be involved in anything. And the pastor said, well, there is one job that needs to be done. It's a very important job. And what's great about it, it might fit you because it can be done at any time of the week. It just needs to be done every week. In that church, which seated 1,200 people in the sanctuary, 
at the end of both of those, uh, at the end of every pew on both sides, there was a little attendance booklet. And during the service, everybody would sign their name that they attended. Now, the reason they did that at this church is because in a large church, people can fall through the cracks, can't they? But what they did is they had a ministry where they were checking, and if you missed three Sundays in a row at that church, somebody would check on you, assuming maybe something was wrong. That way people knew that they were cared about and they were loved, and so they were brought back into the fold. And he said, well, that sounds like something I could do. He says, well, there's hundreds of pencils. There's those little ones that, you know, they wear out pretty quickly. And he said, well, I'd love to do that. And he says, well, there's a stipulation. The young man looked with some concern. He says, what's that? He said, if you are willing to commit to allowing Jesus to sharpen the, sharpen the pencils through you and for you, then I'll let you do this ministry. But if you cannot commit to allowing Jesus to sharpen the pencils through you and for you, then I'm sorry, but I can't give you this job. And the young man said, where are the pencil sharpeners? And I know this is true because Beth and I, every Wednesday night, sat in the church choir, in the choir loft there, every Wednesday night, and we'd see this young man come in and collect all those pencils. We never saw him come back because choir rehearsal would be over before he sharpened all those pencils and put them back, but I know they were sharpened because every Sunday... All the, even, even the ones in the choir loft were all sharpened. Now, this might seem like a little bit of an insignificant ministry, but I'll tell you that when you're doing that, it's the same as those who are in Indonesia witnessing the gospel to the people who are lost there because of how he was doing this. He was allowing Jesus to do it through him and for him. Look, I'm not trying to get you more involved in this church. <laughs> That's not what this is really about. <laughs> What I'm simply trying to do is maybe get you connected to what you really care about. I'm encouraging you to take advantage of the privilege that you have to participate in the work of the Lord. And I know many of you don't need to hear this because you're already quite involved. I love this scene at the end of Bruce Almighty. I think I probably even showed it before when Bruce asked God, what do you want me to really do? And he says, I want you to pray. So he closes his eyes and he prays for world peace. And God says, that's really good if you're running for Miss America. Then he says, now what do you really care about, Bruce? And then he prays a beautiful prayer. So I ask myself that question, what do I really care about? What part of the wall do you really care about? And what I care about is I care about helping people grow in their relationship with Jesus. I care about helping people realize who they already are in Christ and how powerful they already are. I care about helping young men become men after God's own heart. I care about helping people to learn how to allow Jesus to work through them in their own profession so that Jesus can be in that mission field of the workplace. I, help, I care about helping young parents learn how to allow Jesus to parent through them so that they can parent by example and not just by their words. There's a person in this church who has a passion for being a good neighbor. That's what she's working on, being a good neighbor. Now, when you first hear that, and be like, oh, okay, big deal. But then I think about what a lousy neighbor I am. <laughs> I think this young woman is hitting the bullseye. She's right on the mark. There's another fellow here whom I love who has a passion for prayer. He's taken it upon himself to be at this church on Wednesday evenings to pray with other people. That's his passion. And a few weeks ago when we asked him if he could forego his sermon so that we could have a prayer service instead, He said yes, not a New York minute, in a New York second. 
And so when I came that Sunday, I wanted to check in with him to make sure he was okay with that idea because Justin was the one who asked him to step down. And um, I said, are you okay with that? And he said, am I okay with it? I'm giddy with excitement. We're going to pray together as a community. And I thought, man, I want to be like that guy. Some of you know I'm talking about Scott. Scott has a passion for prayer. I'm not saying he's good at it. I'm just saying he has a passion (laughs) for prayer. (laughs) Actually, he's very good at it. I just love to pick on Scott once in a while because I love to hear his laugh because his laugh is a witness to me also about the Lord. So which part of the wall do you care about? Find your passion. And that's kind of a strong word, isn't it? Find your passion. Maybe let's start with finding our interest or maybe our curiosity and make it a matter of prayer. Because passion means to suffer for. Whatever you're passionate about, you'll be willing to suffer for in some way, shape, or form. And I don't mean to commit to that forever. See, Nehemiah didn't stay in Jerusalem forever either. To maybe commit for a while. I generally suggest to commit for like a year. Try something for a year, and then after a year, sit down and evaluate. Are you experiencing Jesus in this ministry you're involving yourself in? And if not, look somewhere else. But if you are, maybe commit to that a little bit longer. You see, if you've given your life to Christ, then he has placed deep within you his own glory. It's called Shekinah glory. Shekinah means settling or dwelling. You already have everything you need. You don't have to wait God has already prepared you. And our ability to commit is actually related to our sense of confidence. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in the Lord. So here are nine things I suggest to you to work on building up your own confidence in the Lord. And the first is don't overcomplicate things. Keep things simple. What did Jesus say about his burden? It's easy. It's light. You have some idea or some desire, super. Then be like Nehemiah and create a plan around that and move forward. Forget what lies behind. Run towards the mark at the end. And don't get distracted by other people or other noise like Sambalot and Tobias tried to distract Nehemiah and wanted to come down to the plane to talk about things. And also don't get distracted by your own amazing ability to overthink and overanalyze. <laughs> Don't get distracted by that. And the second is to focus on what you want, not on what you don't want. See, people who become confident in the Lord focus on the future because they know they're going to be blessed. They expect it because God said he would. And then the third is act as though it's already yours. We are not earning our salvation. We already have it. Act like it. It's really true. But Bill doesn't feel true. I didn't say go with feelings. Go with the truth. This is what you already have. People who are short in their relationship with God allow their language and their actions to line up with the outcome. They aren't being haughty or arrogant. They're simply being truthful. You know, Nehemiah was like this, and some found him conceited and egotistical. And that's why uh, originally they didn't have Ezra and Nehemiah. They just had Ezra because some felt in Nehemiah was being a little bit cocky, a little bit haughty. But others found his behavior inspiring. And the fourth one is to use words with intention. Remember he said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be hot or cold. Nehemiah told them that the hand of my God has been gracious upon me. So your heart or your subconscious mind listens to how you language things and then turns around and offers you that same exact language. One person would say, the Lord is leading me to get involved and help to build the youth ministry. And another person says, I've thought about getting involved in the youth ministry, but I'm not quite sure I'm ready. 
When you, will you be ready? One young man said something exactly like that to me. I said, well, how will you know when you're ready? If you know you're not ready, how will you know when you are? And he said, <sighs> I said, so you feel like you're not ready, you're a little weak? And he said, yeah. And I said, interesting, then you're ready because God's strength is perfected in your weakness. If you think you're ready to do ministry, we don't want you. We want those <laughs> who think they're not ready. See, this person who's thinking that way is basically setting themselves to keep doing a lot of thinking. <laughs> I love this guy. He's the best laugh. You could probably get comedians to pay you to sit in their audiences. <laughs> I have to pay him. So um, the Bible tells us, let our love be shown in action, not just in words and talk. And then the fifth one is, listen to others, listen to their opinions, but remember, it's just their opinion. Some people state their opinion like it's fact. <laughs> it's just their perspective of things. You have to own your own life. And the sixth one, watch out for the tyranny of the urgent to the sacrifice of what's important. This is a big problem in a lot of places, not just in churches. Everywhere I go and I mention that, people come up, what was that tyranny of the something? <laughs> because everything around here is urgent, so everything becomes important. Most things that are urgent usually aren't important. <laughs> what are the important things that you really care about? Learn how to say no to those urgent things and say yes to the important things. Because the irony of that is, when you do that, people will tend to treat you with more respect. The seventh one here is to act humble. Confident people don't talk endlessly about their successes. <laughs> they understand that anything that's happened that looks like I did it, I'm in Christ, crucified with Christ, no longer alive, but Christ living in me. He did all this through me and for me. And also, number eight is there's going to be failure. And don't fear failure. Failure is inevitable. People who become confident realize that failures are just opportunities to learn. People who are making the most mistakes are learning the most, which is why I qualify for genius level at this point. <laughs> I don't like to brag, <laughs> but I'm pretty there. Confident people remember... I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nothing separates me from the love of God. Nothing's going wrong. It might look like it to the world, but this is not failure. And the last one is to repeat all the above. Confidence doesn't happen overnight. It builds over time because practice makes progress. Listen, Jesus makes perfect. Practice makes progress. We are being sanctified. And so, confidence in Christ becomes actually a form of witness. It becomes the wall and it's more e easily noticed. People want what you have. We don't think here in terms of shoulds and oughts, obligation and duty, like the churches that we used to go to. <laughs> we think here in terms of privilege and honor, opportunity. We don't have responsibilities. God has given us respondability. The word responsibility is not in the scripture. So here's me. I choose to build my life in Christ, my family in Christ, and my community in Christ. That's what we're trying to do here at this little brick church in the peninsula. We're trying to learn how to build with prayer, combined with action, through opposition and generosity with others on God's word, confessing. We are dependent upon Jesus and we move forward with commitment. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you for the privilege of knowing you. We thank you for the gracious gift that you've given us in your Son. We now claim that we have received you in our life and that we have everything that you said you would give us. That we have a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. And Father, I pray you would continue to show us in the deepest part of ourselves that Shekinah glory that you have settled upon us and is resting and dwelling in us. I pray that you would show us the passion that you've already placed in us and that you would give us the strength, the courage, and the confidence in you to move forward in helping to build your kingdom. We thank you for the privilege and opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.